So uh, the, we just got back from vacation. We had an awesome time at the shore. Uh, my brother and his family, my sister and her family. My sister came in from Iowa. My brother came in from Cincinnati. My parents were there. Um, Jen and I and our family were all packed into a Cape Cod. And uh, it brings to mind a wonderful Charles Dickens quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, there's... There, there's something uh, really, really special about being jammed into a small space with your family. Uh, something that can be really challenging and something that can be really special. And we had such an awesome time. It was really, really good. Watching the cousins just play and get along was worth it all. You know, it really was. Um, and uh, there's a conversation that we started to have, um, uh, the adults we were having, that was an interesting conversation. Um, and it was about a, a freedom in America. And this came up a few times throughout our time. What does it mean to be free in America these days? What do, as Americans, what do we think of as freedom? And, and what is freedom in an American mindset? And one of the observations that we had is how... Uh, the idea of freedom becomes an increasingly individualized concept. That I am personally free from what anyone else wants of me or expects of me, that there is like individual freedom. It's not necessarily that we have freedom from Great Britain as a nation, not necessarily that uh, there are values of freedom so that people worship appropriately or, or, or whatever, but that there's, it's becoming increasingly individualized, that I want to be able to do what I want, how I want, when I want, with whoever I want, or without whoever I don't want to do it with, you know, and just an increasingly individualized picture of freedom. And when we think in terms of freedom, uh, it, it's very easy to, the ideal of freedom is that if I can have enough resource, enough talent, enough wealth, that I can kind of get independent from other people, then I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. And so the freedom is, is that if I get the financial freedom that I need, then I can begin to separate myself and kind of insulate myself more from other people and I can feel more free to just be me. And that that is the increasing picture of what freedom looks like in America. That is, uh, has really become, I believe, when we think in terms of what the pursuit of happiness means, that the pursuit of happiness has uh, really become understood, at least in recent years, to be a self-subsistent, independent lifestyle that, uh, that has really a growing sense of entitlement around it. Where many of us think that we are each entitled to be self-sufficient and independent and kind of outside of the bounds of being controlled or connected to other community that I am responsible to. Um, and that, that might come across as real negative, um, and yet I think that it's a growing problem for us to understand what it means to be freedom, to, to have freedom in our individual life, but still know how to function together in society and how to actually move toward being connected to people appropriately. So when I acquire enough resources to begin to insulate myself, to build a wall around my castle, 
you know, to build a fence in my gated community and to live separate from other people, that there's some measure of freedom in that, whether that's metaphorically or whether that's literally, physically. That sense, the story we have today is about a couple of guys who actually got there. That's what the story is today. Two guys who actually found that. They had enough resources to separate themselves. And as a matter of fact, they had to separate themselves. And that's what's interesting, is that they had to separate themselves. This is going to be, this here is a story of transition. This isn't one of those stories when you think about Abraham, the story of Abraham. It's not one of the big stories that you're like, oh yeah, Abraham did that. This is a transition when he's going from one situation to another situation in his life. It's a transition moment in his life. And this moment of transition sets the stage for so many other things. Normally, this is one of those places where if you're reading the story of Abraham, you kind of blow through that and you'll be like, okay, there's some narrative necessities so we know what's going on in the story. But it's kind of like you just blow through it and move to the next big story. And yet there are some really important things to catch here because everything that led to this transition and everything that comes out of this transition is affected by some very, very simple decisions that take place in this story. And we're going to look at them, okay? So I'm going to ask you to open up your uh, scripture. And uh, as Josh read to us from Genesis 13 today, we're just going to go verse by verse down through it today, okay? We're going to exegete the scripture today. This is going to be a little more of a teaching probably than preaching. Well, you know me. Who knows what will happen? So um, Abraham went up from Egypt, and he, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, So he went up from Egypt. You remember what happened two weeks ago. Josh spoke to you about what happened down in Egypt, right? And what happened down in Egypt was horrific, bad situation. This is when he, remember, is scared to death of Pharaoh. And so he tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. He neglects to tell Pharaoh that Sarah is his wife. Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his wife. Bad scene. Bad, bad scene. Bad, bad Abraham. The whole thing. Bad, bad. Like mess, right? What happens in the process of that is there's so many negative things that take place. And yet, watch this. Verse 2. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Why? Why was he very rich? Well, look at verse 16. If you dial up into chapter 12, verse 16, and this is uh, verse 15, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, this is Sarah, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Verse 16, And for her sake, he dealt with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. It's not the only Pharaoh of Egypt who's going to have great plagues. But how did Abram get so wealthy? 
How did he get wealthy? He sold his wife into slavery. He human trafficked his own wife and got rich. That's essentially how that thing went down. You know? Is that he was a coward in how he handled his wife and how he handled the situation. He was faithless and he didn't grab a hold of it. And when that happened, he got extremely wealthy in the situation, but he lost something very, very deep and important, which is the respect of his wife. And you will see the ramifications of this all throughout Abraham's life. We will see the ramifications of this decision manifesting throughout Abraham's life. And here's one of the things is that um, Abraham acquires his wealth at the expense of his marriage. And that happens all the time, by the way. Where families gain that sense of independence, that sense of gated community, that sense of we can do things the way we want, how we want, and yet inside things are falling apart. Because we're at the expense of getting the luxuries, we lose the basic relational necessities. And that happens in many, many different ways when we prioritize wrong and we chase the wrong thing. That's what happens. And now, um, this story of Abraham in general, the story of Abraham shows us oftentimes that when we take matters into our own hands, instead of trusting God, even when we're trying to do the right thing, like Abraham saying, I want to protect my wife. I want to protect the situation. I'm scared. I don't know how to do it. So he takes matters into his own hands and he lies about her. Then God doesn't, isn't the one who's taking care of them. Abraham's the one who's taking care of them. And then things fall apart. And so when we try to take matters into our own hands, instead of trusting God, there are consequences. And there are always consequences when we do not depend on God always consequences. There's ramifications in our lives. And sometimes those ramifications are ongoing ramifications. Here's the good news, is that no matter how far we have wandered from depending on God, there is always a path back home. Always. And that's why in verse 1, it says that Abraham went up from Egypt. And that's why in verse 3, and I want you to catch this, in verse 3, it says, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, when, uh, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I have no idea if Abram was ever supposed to go to Egypt. He went to Egypt because there was a famine. And he was doing what he felt like he needed to do to take care of his family. It never says that God told him to go there. It just says that that's what he did to try to take care of his family. Whether he was supposed to do that or not, the text never tells us. What we do know is, is that Abraham got in the, Abram got in the mindset where he was the one who was taking care of his family. And he forgot that he left his family in order to obey God and God was always going to provide. And somewhere along the line, Abram started to act like God to his family instead of trusting God with his family. And in in that path, he stopped calling on the name of the Lord. And the whole time that he's in Egypt, you never hear God speak to him. God never shows up in the whole story, except for this. God shows up with Pharaoh by sending plagues 
in order to get Abram to go back to the land he's supposed to be on. And once he gets back up to the land, God speaks to him again. Really interesting. And so Abram, he goes back up, and what it says, and I want to just pull out a couple of phrases there from verse 3 and 4 and piece this together for your own life. It says, He journeyed to the beginning where he had made an altar and there called on the name of the Lord. For some of us, we need to hear that today. Have you strayed in your relationship with the Lord? Is it time to come back home? Have you, were you at some point in your life at that place where you were crying out to God, looking for God to direct all of your decisions, looking for God to be your provider, and in all things you knew I'm not the one in charge, God's the one in charge, and my first priority is not to figure this out. My first priority is to go to the Lord and to ask him what to do. And maybe at some point in your life, you lived your life that way. But now uh, you just kind of assume that as a Christian who's read the Bible, who's kind of walked with God, you know what you should do. And you just kind of do what you think is right without seeking God. Maybe prayer was a regular part of the routine when you first came to Christ and and you couldn't wait to kind of communicate with God and calling on the name of the Lord and building the altar and and all of that was a part of it. But prayer has kind of become like, uh, you know, a, a routine thing, but not necessarily kind of that central driving thing, you know? It's okay. It's okay because there's a path from Egypt to the Negeb back up to Bethel, to the beginning, where there was an altar where you call on the name of the Lord again. Anybody can do that at any time, today, right now, right here. You can begin to call on the name of the Lord again. And that's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful thing. Egypt became a metaphor for Abraham's family. It became a big problem down the line, you know, for Abraham's family. I think that what happened down in Egypt with Abraham leads to problems that will happen in Egypt in his family line generations later when they're taken into slavery. His wife was taken into a situation that was like slavery. And ultimately his children, his children's children's children will be taken into slavery down in Egypt. And you can see how the sins of the fathers pass on to the next generation. And, and so his, his kids end up in slavery. And then God rescues them through the plagues against Pharaoh in the same way. And you see the, the repeated themes and how this stuff works with God. Here's the thing is that the story of Abraham is peppered with evidence that we need to understand how easy it is for us to set in motion Problems that will not only affect us, but will affect generations to come. As I was um, thinking about what to pray for for Spring City this afternoon, I started doing some research on the history of Spring City. You know what's amazing? How many times the names Latchaw or Yost or Willower start showing up in, when you start reading the history of Spring City? You know, those are names that our congregation is built around. If you don't know that, they are. Our congregation is built around those names, you know, of people. And, and uh, you know, hearing those names as I read the history books makes you realize, like, we come from somewhere, you know? And the land that we live on and how it's shaped is shaped from people behind us. 
and how we develop as people is in many ways shaped by the decisions of those behind us. And Abraham shows that in many ways that can be both negative and positive. Because in the story of Abraham, we get to see both, you know? And in the story of Abraham, in this situation, in the this, in this situation that we heard about from Josh two weeks ago, we see a lot of negative ramifications for the nation of Israel because of what happened from Abraham in Egypt. And I, I want to stop and take inventory for a minute and just say, what things are we tempted to take on our own and go after on our own that would have negative effects for the generations coming after us? I'm just going to ask you for a second to close your eyes, please. And to just listen to some of the things that have generational consequences. How do we use our resources? Are we materialistic? And how does that leave a message for those coming after us? How do we deal with sexuality? Do we stay within God's boundaries? Do we struggle with lust or pornography? with living outside of God's bounds for sexuality? How about dishonesty, compromised integrity, theft? How about how we use our tongues, our mouths, and how we talk about others, how gossip and slander, dissension, how do they they affect our home? Laziness or a lack of self-discipline, fear, cowardice, not stepping out and taking action. Physical addictions, substance abuse, emotional addictions, workaholism, performance-based identity, trying to become something by doing all sorts of things and running around and not being present. Codependent relationships where we submit inappropriately. Cruelty, indifference, injustice, not actually caring about those broken around us, a lack of compassion, greed, a lack of generosity. In any of these ways, when we live from these places, they can have effect on our children and our children's children and can change the whole story. So I just want to remind us that even when we've been to Egypt and even when we've lived inappropriately and even when we've kind of lived life at our own luxury or our own way, in our own selfish way, that while that can have negative effects on our family line, there is also a path from Egypt back up to Bethel. And right now, God would call us with whatever place in our life we struggle with any of those things he would call us back to the beginning back to the altar back to the place where we worshiped and called on the name of the lord and said you define my life i don't want to be the definer of my life and he sits there with open arms welcoming us and i would just ask you right now to give that thing to the lord we all struggle abraham struggled We all struggle. Just give it to the Lord and ask for his redemption. Father, we know we're not judged in uh, an eternal sense of uh, our moment and, you know, walking into eternity with you in heaven based on our works. But we also know that there are major consequences 
for whether we walk in step with your spirit or not. And we just ask God in these places that you would wash and cleanse us. Those things that we've inherited from generations before us, those things that we would uh, perpetrate that would, that would uh, have effects on those in front of us, God, we just want to release those to you. Please bring redemption in the name of Jesus. Uh, Abraham's story is not only one that has negative effects. Abraham's story is the very definition of generational blessing. If there is a story in the scripture other than Jesus himself about generational blessings, Abraham is the story. His family line is blessed above all other family lines. It is amazing what God does. Even in the midst of the difficult things, there's these spectacular things. And uh, that's what this story is really about today. That's what it's really about. So I want you to look at verse 5 and 7. 5 to 7. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. You know what we call that? First world problems. First world problems. Possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the time, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land, which I won't get into that. There's a cool little thing we could do there, but we won't. What you need to know is their company got big enough that now they have management problems. And now it's like, once you have this many employees, you need that many resources to continue to take care of the employees. Um, you know, and there's all of that. The bigger things get, the bigger the problems get. Bigger does not equal better. Period. Sometimes bigger is an indication of God's blessing. Sometimes it is not. In this case, bigger was a result of sin. Adam or uh, Abram has more resources because he did the wrong thing. And now he has to deal with his wealth. And sometimes wealth is something that can be a curse every bit as much as a blessing. Now, here's the cool thing is that because of the fact that he turns back to God, there's this moment where now all this wealth, and God wants to bless him. He always told him he was going to bless him. He always told him he was going to make him wealthy. He always told him that. But now the way that this wealth that he got is a, a wealth that wasn't, it wasn't, his wealth wasn't going to come from Pharaoh in that way. You know, and so now it makes things more complicated. And now they're having like management problems, you know, and lots of people and Abram's people are having all this tension. Now that when they're around the dinner table, what used to be just about them is about all these other complicated things and the family business and yada, yada. And so Abram handles this situation much, much better than he handled the situation with his wife. This time, even though things aren't ideal with what he has and the situation that he's kind of walked into now, he does the right thing. And what he does is he shows respect to his nephew. Incredible act of generosity coming from Abram. Okay, so verse 8. 
Uh, verse 7, there was strife between the... Uh, verse 8, I'm sorry. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take, to the, uh, take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. So here, Lot owes his very life to Abram. Lot, as you recall... His dad died. Abram took him in. That's Abram's brother died. He took in his son, Lot. Lot owes his whole life to Abram. That means that all that Lot has belongs to Abram, technically, in their society. It was all Abram's. Abram decides to give this, to front load this guy's inheritance, which he doesn't even owe him that inheritance. And he's going to give him massive inheritance and say, you can have this and look this way and look that way and take whichever way you want. It's all yours. I don't want there to be strife between us. I'll tell you what, if we're having a hard time with 14 people in a Cape Cod, here, I'll build another one for you and just go over there and hang out so we don't have to fight, you know? First world problems. And yet he handles it well. And he shows a massive respect and enormous generosity. And instead of Abram claiming his rights and saying, get your people in line and get it, he knows that Lot has his own man now and he's got to be treated with respect in order for this thing to go well. And so he shows him enormous generosity and he gives him space and he says, take what you want. Now, did Lot have to leave? It's hard. I mean, the land, you, they, I don't know, there wasn't enough land. It, it's like with the rich young ruler. Remember when Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor? I love what Tim Keller says about that. He says, the guy was like completely incapable. He was totally addicted to his stuff. Like you could tell he wasn't going to be able to sell it. He couldn't figure it out. He's like, his biggest mistake was not that he didn't sell his stuff. His biggest mistake was that he hung his head and turned around and walked away from Jesus. Why didn't he just stay and confess the fact that he couldn't do it? I mean, there's the possibility here with Lot that Lot could have said, I am not leaving you. All that I have is yours. There's someone in the scripture who did that. Do you remember who that was? Ruth with Naomi. And Naomi was like, go, come on, you don't owe me anything. And Ruth is like, everything I have is yours. There is nothing else. There is no way I'm leaving or whatever. Lot could have argued for that. And if he had, my guess is, is his family line would have been integrated with Abraham's family line and he would have received the family blessing. As it was, he didn't. And what instead he did was he took that opportunity and he looked around and he said, man, that land over there is sweet. And so he goes after it, okay? And so we see what happens with Lot. But the important thing is to see what Abram did, which is that he gave enormous space and he let go of his rights, okay? And he blessed in order to deal with this conflict. That becomes a generational blessing. Here's two ways in which that becomes a generational blessing. Anybody remember in the next generation, his son Isaac has this confrontation. He goes and digs all these wells. And then Abimelech, this guy who Abraham's had problems with, comes and says, what are you doing with all these wells? My people are telling me that you're taking our wells. And Isaac's like, I dug all those wells. I personally dug those wells. And Bimlech says, that's not what my guys say. And you know what Isaac does? Have them. I don't want problem with you. You can have them. Where did Isaac learn that? From his dad. From his dad. Except Isaac wasn't born when this happened. 
See, the decisions that we make affect the next generation, even when the next generation isn't observing it. Because it's not just learning through watching, it's learning by spiritual impartation. The way we live our lives affects the next generation. And so when we walk in faith with God and do what he's asking us to do and take him at his word and trust him, it has effects on the next generation. That's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. And that happens to Isaac. And uh, the, the, the touchy part of this here is that um, he's trying to give distance to Lot without separating himself. He's not making this move because he's like, I'm annoyed with Lot and I just want to get rid of him. That's paying someone off to get out of your space. That's the kind of that American dream of like, I want space, so I want to pay you off to get away from it. There's another part of it that's different that says, I will give you space and respect you so that we can get along. You know, I'll give you the necessary space. And that's the touchy thing. It's I'm willing to let go of my rights. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why um, Jesus says that he, he doesn't think that uh, Christians are to take each other to court. Because we don't get into a contractual relationship with each other where like, all right, if you do this and I do this, then we're good. It's this is all the Lord's and we got to find a way to get along. We got to find a way to be together in this. And that's the way when we resign our rights. And, and underneath of that is the humility and generosity of saying, I will not see myself as better than you. I will not see myself as more entitled. Even if the law says I'm more entitled, in the eyes of God, I'm not. And that's, a, that's an extremely important thing. And if we want to know if that's actually legit, all we have to do is turn to the second chapter of Philippians and realize that Jesus gave up his entire identity as a son of God in many ways and said he'd empty himself of everything and took on the form of a servant and became like man and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped took on the form of a servant, and cared for us. And Jesus loves to call himself the Son of Man instead of the Son of God. Here's the other place in Abram's family line where we see this. There's this awesome moment in Hebrews 11 where it's talking about one of Abram's great-great-grandsons named Moses. And it says that Moses, when he had matured, decided that he did not want to be known as Pharaoh's daughter's son but instead wanted to be identified with his people. When we take all of our rights, when we take anything that is ours and we're willing to let go of it in order to be close to people, and we say, our role here is not to separate myself, to live in luxury. My role is to take all that God has given me and to leverage that for the sake of love in order to better those around me. That, is the commodity of the kingdom of God to use my resources for the betterment of others. That's the call. Lot shows us something else. All right? Hang with me. We're getting, we're getting toward the final point here. Verse 10 and 11. Lot looks, lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. You remember someone else who lifted their eyes and saw that something was good? Eve, Eve lifted her eyes and saw that the fruit was good. Also, there's the sons of God who see the, the daughters of men. 
It's a whole other passage. Looked and saw that they were beautiful. When our eyes grab a hold of something and see it and say, man, that looks good. There's danger lurking, right? There's danger. And it doesn't have to be anything real bad. It can be like, that's good land. That'd be a great place to raise my family. Did you see that house? That'd be great. Very simple things. And yet he doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't seek the betterment of Abraham. It says, the valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Man, this is like the garden of Eden. This is like paradise. Like the land of Egypt. Oh, man, remember when we were back in Egypt and those guys were loaded? That area looks like that. He was looking around like that covetous thing where it's like this is what makes people independently wealthy or makes them feel good or whatever. Verse lot, so, or verse 11. So Lot chose for himself, and you could just stop right there. <laughs> he chose for himself. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. The rest of the story is written. When they separate from each other, Lot's course is set. Lot's life will never be the same because he's separated from the family that had taken him in. And he's separated because he saw something that he wanted. And when he did, he went after it and didn't think about anyone really other than himself. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, and now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And we will, of course, hear the story of that coming. And what's happening is, is Lot, without knowing that he's beginning to associate himself with the sinfulness of the world, it took one step of saying, I want what I want, and I don't want to think about anything else. It's just that one step leads to identifying with a world that is based on I want what I want without considering what God wants or without considering what my family needs. And so that's where Lot goes. Abram, very, very different in this situation. Abram gives Lot what? essentially he probably needs in the moment. Lot probably was pretty difficult to deal with at this moment, and the only way to handle him was to respect him and to give him choice. And so he did give him choice. How does that affect Abram? He releases an enormous amount of his wealth and empowers Lot. And in the meantime, how does that affect? Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, Northward, southward, eastward, westward. From all the land that you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And what happens here is Abram decides to flow in the kingdom commodity. This is what I want to ask us as our kind of closing, pondering thought, okay? There may be no greater uh, goal or uh, desire of the American ethos than that sense of getting enough that I can do my own thing without anyone else telling me what to do, 
right now that may be the, the height of what America thinks is awesome. Capitalism might tell us that money flows really well if you work hard and if you spend a lot. And there's a counter voice that says, be smart, be wise, and save a lot. But there's one other voice as well, which is the voice of God that says, resources were made to bless. And the kingdom of God is built on understanding that all that I have is being given to me. And all that I'm to be thinking is how to invest into the kingdom of God to sow seeds for eternity that will generationally bless God's kingdom. How can I use what God has given me to bless the kingdom of God? And that's the, that's the, the eternal mindset the mindset of the kingdom. And what Abram begins to understand in this moment is instead of being afraid of everyone else and controlling, he remembers God is the provider. And my goal here is not to hold on, to hoard, to spend, or to save. My job is to listen and to obey and to invest into the kingdom. And when I do, what happens is it comes back around. And God just blesses him as we walk in the family ethic of God, which is I begin to generously bless, then God can continue to bless me. And that's the ethic of the kingdom of God. So for a modern American Christian, there are a few disciplines that are really important to keep in place. One is we need to push the boundaries of what radical generosity actually looks like. We need to push our own selves and we need to push our community to say, what does radical generosity look like? Not frivolous throwing money without wisdom, but radical generosity that says, what I have was not for me. What I have is God's and it's for the kingdom. Radical generosity. When's the last time that you pushed yourself in giving so much that you were like, holy cow, how is this going to work? When's the last time you pushed yourself that way? And it needs to happen on a regular basis for us to keep ourselves in a place of faith. That's one thing that needs to happen. Second thing is that we need to stay connected, prayerful, and supportive and serving of people who we don't like to be with. Because as wealthy Americans, and every American is wealthy, I don't care how far we are below the poverty line compared to the rest of the world, We are immensely wealthy. And our desire is often to isolate ourselves from the problems of dealing with other people. And that is a first world problem. And we will not be sanctified in the body of Christ unless we are willing to consistently stay connected and integrated with those who we don't like to be with. Which is one of the biggest problems we're having in the kingdom of God in America right now is when you don't like a situation, you just bounce and go somewhere else. Because we can. So radical generosity, staying connected to those we don't want to. And then there's this other piece, which is about vulnerability, which is that I actually do need other people, even if I can't see easily where I need it, and it's because I'm a mess. There's a part of me that's still a mess. And even if I have the resources I need, even if I can kind of take care of my physical needs, there are things about my brokenness that need the body of Christ to hold me accountable, to stay connected, to see me for who I am. 
because I cannot see myself clearly. I never can. I need to confess, and I need to be open and vulnerable with other people. And we need to do that with wisdom, you know? Abram does all these things. I think Abram in this moment, he realizes his own brokenness. He realizes, man, I just got to give. But he also doesn't separate himself from Lot. We will find out next week how he does anything but separate himself from Lot. As a matter of fact, he comes to Lot's rescue many times. So even though he's willing to be generous and give him space, and after he's done everything to serve him, even when Lot bombs it, he still stays connected, you know, which is really hard to be generous and still connected, you know. Um, And so um, the chapter ends with this promise at the end that, you know, God gives him everything. And then it says this. These are the last two verses. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So when you go home today, and as we pray about, God, what are the stuff in the family line that I can release? And what are the ways that you can pull me into generosity more? And what are the ways that I need to stay connected? I want us to hear that word of walk through the land that I've given you and pray. What is it that he has given us? What's the family he has given us? What's the property he has given us? What's the bank account he has given us? What's the whatever that he has given us? Walk through that with the Lord. Walk around in that thing. Look around and say, God, thank you. This is awesome. What do you want me to do with this? Instead of looking for that, what do you want me to do with this? You know, and live in it and embrace it, you know, and thank God for it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the generosity that, uh, of, the, of the God of heaven who was willing not just to give us, you know, the cattle on a thousand hill, which is nothing to you because you make them anyway. Could just set up a factory with a blink of an eye that just pumps out cows. You know, it's nothing for you. But you gave us what really mattered. You gave us your heart and you gave us your son and you gave us your life. You gave us your pride, humbling yourself. You washed our feet. You loved us. You served us. You spoke truth when no one wanted to hear it, but it needed to be said. You stayed with us when no one else would. You were willing to get dirty, be born in a stable. You were willing to be mocked whatever it takes. Thank you for your love, for your generosity, for giving us all that matters. And we ask now, God, that we would stand with you, that you would well up in us the belief that this ethic in this family that we were born into is the ethic that's much higher than any cultural ethic we know. And that, God, we would stand in it. And with great joy, God, we would stand in the place of humble generosity. And we would say, it's all from God. And it's worth giving it and giving it and giving it and trying to outgive and have the joy of saying it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we can't wait to look back from the eternity and step back and say, look at what God did. Look at what God did when we gave well beyond what we thought we could. God, we thank you. Thank you, God, 
for your protection for us. Keep us humble. Keep us generous by the grace of your son, Jesus, and your spirit working within us. In whose name we pray, amen.